Hello and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thanks for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's free resources, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, I pray that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to do today, but that you would speak to the glory of Christ's name alone. It is in Jesus' name I ask this. Amen. Welcome. Elijah was a prophet who spoke for God in the Old Testament. He lived at a time of great sin and wickedness in the nation of Israel. They'd strayed from the one true God to worship idols, and the Lord raised up Elijah to turn the hearts of his people back to him. Many of us remember Elijah as the man who, in the power of God, was able to call down fire and rain from heaven. Some may even remember that in the midst of a famine, he was able to miraculously multiply a poor widow's oil and flour. And when her son died, Elijah did what no one had ever done before in Scripture. Led by the Holy Spirit, he prayed for the boy and God raised the young man from the dead. What a remarkable servant of God he was. And yet, in the New Testament, James chapter 5 verse 17 tells us that despite his remarkable life story, Elijah was a person just like us. In order to understand who Elijah was as a person, it's important for us to understand the time in which he lived. The twelve tribes of the nation of Israel had been united under the leadership of their first three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon. But upon Solomon's death, the kingdom split. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin formed the kingdom of Judah in the south, with its capital in Jerusalem, while the other ten tribes formed the northern kingdom of Israel with their capital in Samaria. Elijah's story takes place in the northern kingdom. Before he came on the scene, the northern kingdom had known six evil rulers. The first, Jeroboam, ruled for 17 years, and because he feared Judah's influence on his people, he prevented them from going to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. Instead, he built two alternate worship sites, one at Bethel and one at Dan, and there he erected idols for his people to worship instead. He did so much evil in the eyes of the Lord, Jeroboam would become the standard by which later evil kings would be judged. His son, Nadab, was just as evil as his father before him. He ruled for only two years before being murdered by a man named Basha who began his reign by killing everyone from the house of Jeroboam. In the 24 years that Baasha ruled, he also did evil in the eyes of the Lord before being succeeded by his son Ella, a renowned drunkard. Ella ruled only two years before he was murdered one night as he lay in a drunken stupor by one of his army officers, a man by the name of Zimri. Zimri's claim to fame was that he managed to rule for only seven days before he committed suicide. Another army officer by the name of Omri took his place as king and ruled for 12 years. 
the nation of Israel drifted far from God during the rule of these six kings, but all the evil that they did was nothing compared to that of the seventh king, Omri's son, Ahab. Seeking to make a political alliance with the people of neighbouring Sidon, Ahab married a Sidonian princess by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel was a pagan woman who brought many wicked religious traditions with her when she became Ahab's wife. The false god she worshipped, called Baal, was an evil deity who, among other atrocities, demanded that people bury their own children alive into the foundations of their homes in order to secure his blessing. Ahab set up a temple to Baal in the city of Samaria, while his wife personally supported 850 so-called prophets of this cult from the king's own table. At the same time, according to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, she systematically went through the kingdom of Israel, killing every prophet of Jehovah that she could find. Ahab and his wife were certainly the most wicked and ruthless people to ever lead Israel, and under their rule, a great spiritual darkness came upon the land. And it was into this darkness that God shone his light in the person of Elijah, a servant of the Lord who was willing to speak truth to power. I am sure many of us are wondering about what kind of man Elijah was. What was his background? Where had he come from? What gave him the courage to stand up for God against people like Ahab and Jezebel? The truth is, Elijah bursts in on the scene from absolute obscurity. Nothing is known about his family or his background. We do know from scripture that he came from the town of Tishbe in Gilead, but Bible scholars are hard-pressed to tell us exactly where that town was. The few other details we have about him make him out to be very strange indeed. 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8 describes him as wearing a garment of hair tied at the waist with a leather belt, which was not the usual way of dressing at that time. And so people were actually able to recognize him from his odd appearance. Though he spoke on behalf of God, there's no indication that Elijah ever wrote anything. There's no book of Elijah, for example, the only record we have of what he did is in the books of First and Second Kings. But we see a couple of remarkable truths in this, and we don't want to miss them. First, God knows how to raise up leaders when they're needed. And secondly, he can use anyone, even a person from absolute obscurity, to do his will, even as he did with Elijah. Elijah did not observe court etiquette when he came into King Ahab's presence for the first time in 1 Kings 17 verse 1. It seems he cared little about what the king thought or his reaction. Elijah's only concern was to deliver the Lord's simple message, 
As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Note how Elijah introduced himself. He didn't even give them his own name. His credentials lay in the fact that he was a servant of the living God of Israel. The message he was bringing was not his own. It was God's message based on a warning he had given his people years before. As Israel was preparing to enter the promised land, the Lord had cautioned them through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 to 17, to be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce. And you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Though Elijah's words were definitely a challenge to Ahab and the false god he and his wife worshipped, they were also a call to Israel to remember their God, to return to him and to worship him alone. One can only imagine what Ahab and Jezebel's response to the prophet's message might have been. It seems that from that moment on, Elijah became public enemy number one as far as the king and queen were concerned. He was hated not only for his pronouncement concerning the drought, but also because of what that suggested about Ahab and Jezebel's false god. You see, Baal was supposed to be a god of rain, and his followers believed that he controlled the weather. So the fact that Elijah declared that at his word there would be a drought really struck at the very core of their belief system. In effect, it would have proved that their Baal had no real power whatsoever. It was the God of Elijah who was all-powerful, and he controlled the weather. I don't think we should underestimate the courage and the faith that it must have taken for God's prophet to speak to the king in this way. I mean, Elijah likely knew that Queen Jezebel had been hunting down those who followed the Lord, and he probably knew how many of his fellow prophets she'd already murdered. I'm sure that he understood the peril he was in, but he delivered the message from God just as he had been instructed, not knowing what the outcome of his confrontation with the king would be. In fact, scripture indicates that it was after his step of obedience that God began to reveal to him what was to happen next, as verse 2 tells us. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. It seems as if God was going to lead Elijah one step at a time. And you know, that really speaks to me. We so often want to know the whole plan before we undertake anything for the Lord, don't we? But God often asks us to take just one step of faith, trusting him to guide us all along our journey. And Elijah's first step 
was to leave the king's court and travel to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan River. This small tributary of the Jordan was apparently so tiny that archaeologists today have no idea where it might have been. So no wonder Elijah was safe from Ahab there. I know we might think that God's purpose was only to hide his prophet so that he could escape the king's anger, but that time of isolation in the ravine really prepared Elijah for the challenges he was yet to face. And that's another point of encouragement to me. So often we worry that our life seems to be in a holding pattern, that we don't seem to be going anywhere for God. Maybe we feel like we've been sidelined. But it's in those moments that he often prepares us for our future. I mean, think about it. The Old Testament character Joseph spent time in a pit when his brothers sold him into slavery. He also spent time in prison when he was falsely accused. But all the while, God was preparing him to be the leader he would one day become. The same was true for David, who after being anointed as king by Samuel, endured 15 years of waiting, often running for his life, from King Saul, who sought to kill him. The Apostle Paul encountered a similar process of preparation shortly after he came to faith in Christ. In his letter to the Galatians, he revealed, and I quote, that he went into Arabia for some time before beginning the ministry that God had called him to. Elijah's preparation was going to begin at the small river of Kerith. Verse 5 tells us, So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. As I contemplated the ravens that brought him food, it occurred to me that in Jewish law, ravens, which are like crows, were considered unclean, and yet the Lord chose to use these unfavored birds to feed Elijah. Perhaps that strange choice prepared the prophet for what was going to happen next. Verse 7. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there'd been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. Perhaps some of us would wonder why God would allow the brook to dry up. I mean, why would he remove his source of supply when his obedient servant Elijah still needed it? But God was using both Elijah's circumstances and his word to nudge the prophet on to his next assignment. I'm sure Elijah, knowing that God had led him to the brook in the first place, could have dug in his heels, thinking, this is where God led me, so this is where I'll stay. He could have started digging down to find underground water to keep him there longer, but he did not. He saw his changing circumstances, but he did not act on those circumstances alone. No, he listened for the word of the Lord 
and then he acted according to God's word in those circumstances. During the transitions in my own life, I have found this to be essential, that we don't rush into doing the first thing that comes to mind, but rather that we take time to ask God's guidance and then truly listen for what he says. And in my own experience, his word to me has often come through a Bible passage that he's brought to my mind or through the input of a godly praying friend. But hearing God's voice in many instances means that we have to slow down and prayerfully listen. Even so, responding to what he says is going to require faith, just as it did for Elijah. Do you see that God directed him to go and stay in Zarephath in the region of Sidon? Now, initially, you might not think that strange, but Sidon was around a hundred miles away from the brook, and traveling so far in a time of drought would have been very, very difficult indeed. Not only that, but Elijah would have had to cross through Ahab's territory to get there. Surely not a comforting thought, seeing as so many people were looking to kill him at the time. But in addition to all of that, the town of Zarephath was in the region of Sidon. Do you remember who else was from Sidon? Jezebel. She was a Sidonian princess. God was directing Elijah to go into Jezebel's home territory, saying that there was a widow there whom he was to stay with. Look at verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, I think if I were Elijah, I would have had a lot more questions at this point. I mean, why a Sidonian widow? Weren't there any widows in Israel that could provide help for him? And why would God choose a widow to supply his needs in the first place? Widows are often the poorest and most vulnerable in any society. And then, when Elijah eventually met her, he could not have felt very assured, because her circumstances were indeed desperate. She and her son were getting ready to eat their last meal. I wonder, as he considered this destitute pagan widow, if the prophet perhaps remembered the unclean ravens God had used to supply his needs before. We aren't told, but Surely the path Elijah had to travel seemed unreasonable. The place he was to stay seemed illogical. And the person to whom God had sent him seemed to be a very strange choice indeed. But in all of it, God was asking Elijah to trust him, despite his own understanding of the situation. And isn't that 
so often true of us also, I know from my own experience that God's directions can often make little to no sense from a worldly perspective. But as Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 to 6 reveals, we are to trust the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. In all our ways we are to submit to him and he will make our path straight. God was surely asking Elijah not to lean on his own understanding. That though this poor widow and her son seemed to be at the end of everything they had, even these difficult circumstances were not too hard for God. And in verse 13, Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first... Make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her, So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Elijah encouraged her not to be afraid. She was to first make a small meal for him out of what she had before making something for herself and for her son. And he promised that her obedience would be met with God's provision. How remarkable that this woman believed the word of the Lord spoken to her through Elijah and immediately did what she was asked. Both Elijah and the woman trusted in the promises of God and they were not disappointed. I think that God calls you and me to live daily in his grace as well. We, like Elijah and this woman, are to trust that the Lord will provide exactly what we need when we need it. And yet, we often struggle with being totally dependent on God. We prefer to trust in what we've stored up for ourselves, in our bank accounts or in our kitchen cupboard. But God asks us to trust Him. I must confess that I had to learn something similar myself when we first came to America. Moving to the United States had taken everything we had. All of our savings were gone. And although the Lord had very evidently opened up the door for us to come here with our two small children, the job that my husband had accepted did not pay very well. And the cost of living here was much higher than we'd ever anticipated. I was very careful about grocery shopping. I would always shop with coupons and buy the supermarket specials to try get the best price possible. Our refrigerator had a very small freezer, but I always made sure it was jam-packed with food. One day, as I was trying to cram one more item into the freezer, A thought came to my mind, and I do believe it was from the Lord, asking me why I felt it had to be so full. I have come to realize that the Lord often asks us some very good questions. 
Because as I thought about it, I realized that as long as I knew the freezer was full, I knew that I would have enough food to feed my children. Now, let me say that there's nothing wrong with planning ahead if you can. But what I was doing was not that. The truth was I knew I had far more than many other people, but I didn't appreciate that. I was finding security in the fact that my freezer was full. When God was asking me to find security in Him as our provider, I remember sitting at the kitchen table and asking God for His forgiveness. From that day on, though my freezer still had plenty of food in it, it was never that full again. The widow of Zarephath had no such abundance, but she had to be willing to let go of what she did have in order to receive everything that the Lord wanted to give her. And, you know, there's a message for us in that too. Will we put our trust in him? Notice God didn't fill her flower jar or her oil bottle to the brim. Each morning there was just enough for their needs for that day. The reality is that sometimes we can only learn daily dependence on God by having things come one day at a time. And those lessons need to go deep into our hearts and lives. It amazes me that at the start of this story, the widow was preparing to die. But when she trusted God, he took care of both her present and her future. There's a lot we can learn from that. Elijah spent two years with this woman and her son, and true to God's promise, their food did not run out until the day the Lord sent rain on the land. Elijah wasn't the only one God was growing in faith and understanding of God. The Lord was at work in the life of the widow and her son as well, as we'll see later. For today, though, I hope you're beginning to see something of yourself in the life of Elijah and that you'll stay with us as we continue to look at the life and ministry of this amazing prophet. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for everything you've said to our hearts. Thank you, Lord God, that you are the one who provides for your people Lord, thank you that you are the one who guides us by your word. Lord, though you might use some strange characters, you are well able to use them to accomplish your purposes. And thank you, God, that we realize you're able to use even people like us. Thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. Michelle's messages are also available on all major podcast platforms and on her website at intheword.com.